It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Those who are just joining us today, uh, we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We had taken a little bit of a break over summer and the first part of fall. We returned to it a number of weeks ago, and we are uh, just entering into the final stretch, chapter 7. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 to 5 in a moment. Um. A couple of weeks ago, three, maybe four weeks ago, Crystalline and I had a little bit of a miscommunication, some confusion in, a, in our interaction with one another. That, that happens with some frequency. Um, some of you will know that we've gotten into uh, fish and aquariums a little bit. It started a number of summers ago when we dug a little hole in our backyard and called it a pond, and, and then those fish came inside. Crystalline has an aquarium at home then for in the winter, and then when the fish went outside, there were new fish in there, and, and we've got an aquarium in my office. Some of you have seen that, and anyways, it's, it's been kind of a fun hobby, um, maybe a little strange, but uh, one of the neat things is we both enjoy gardening, and in both our aquariums now, all the plants are live plants. None of them are the, the plastic ones, and so it's kind of like gardening underwater. Um, Crystalline, a number of weeks ago, bought for in my aquarium some floating plants, and ideally you want those plants to stay in one particular area, not float around, not get water on them from the filter, etc. And so she'd put them in there, and they were moving around, and she said, hey, we need to get one of those things that you can get that holds them in a particular spot. And so we looked online, and we found it, and it's kind of like a dam. It's this this pipe, this plastic tube, if you will, that has loops at the end, and then you stick suction cups with a, with a post coming off it at each end, and you, you clip that on there, and that floats on the water, and so when the water goes down, it goes down with it. When you add water, it goes up, and the plants will stay in there, so it functions uh, much like a dam. So anyways, we ordered one, and we were waiting a number of days for it to come, and uh, a number of days, I don't know, three, four, five days later, I noticed, I checked my email, and I noticed that it had actually been delivered the day before, and I had missed it when I had gone home. It was probably laying on our porch. I was hoping that it was still laying on our porch, that it hadn't been picked up by some passerby. And so I texted Crystalline, and I, I said very innocently, hey, hey, sweetie, that damn thing has arrived. <laughs> Have you brought it into the house yet? A few minutes later, she texted me back and said, oh, you got me, ha, ha. And I thought, What? What in the world? And, and then she sent me another text that said, I couldn't figure out why you were angry. And I thought, what? Angry? And, and then I called her and she said, well, you asked where that damn thing was. Oh, I'll send it clued in. Like I had totally had not heard that. Did not. And I've looked. It's not actually called a dam. It's called a floating plant corral. So I know better for next time. This morning, we come to a passage in the Sermon on the Mount that is often misunderstood, often quoted, but often misunderstood. A great deal of confusion when it comes to what Jesus says here in these verses. Let me read. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read the first five verses of chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Before we dig into these verses, let me remind you of a few things. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are prefaced by the announcement of good news. The good news that in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, a whole new order of existence has broken in. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading the earth. In, in this, Jesus' kingdom is coming. And I've been arguing that when the good news, the gospel, takes root in a person's life, something happens. And that something that happens is described for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity. Uh, Men and women, teenagers, boys and girls, who exhibit new characteristics, who live for a new purpose, who uh, begin to live out uh, new behaviors, who have new ambitions, the, the last couple of weeks, we saw that they, they have a new way of relating to the world in which we live. That is, no longer do we pursue the things of this world. We don't treasure earthly things. And not only that, but we also don't worry about earthly things. Rather, we are transformed into those who seek first the kingdom of God. I've contended that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't giving us a new law. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. He is painting a picture, a portrait of this new kind of humanity, of gospelized humanity. Men and women, uh, young and old, who are, are being transformed and brought into this new existence through the spirit and the power of the good news. Now this morning, as we look at these five verses There are six questions that I want to ask with you. Uh, First, as we enter into the text, first question is, what important implication must, must we recognize about this text as we come to it? Second question, what is it that Jesus cannot be telling us? What can he not be saying here? Third question, how are we to understand the word judge? Fourth, why does Jesus say we're not to judge others? Fifth, What is the point of Jesus' ophthalmological illustration? And sixth, how are we to live this out? What does this look like in our lives today? So question number one, can I answer your question later? Oh, you're going to answer? Okay, well... All right, let's compare, let's compare answers when, when I get to the end, okay? All right. Question number one, what important implication must we recognize as we come to this text? If I were to ask you right now, what is the theme of these five verses, uh, I'm sure that probably all of us would answer, well, the theme is judging. I mean, that's the heading in the NIV, that's the heading in other translations, do not judge. And, and that's a good answer. It's a reasonable answer. Uh, it's certainly not right. Four times, in fact, in the first verse and a half, we encounter that word or, or word group, judge, right? Do not judge or you'll be judged. From the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. So it's a good answer, a legitimate answer. But, but it's an answer that misses something. There's something deeper that I want to highlight for us. I think something important that we need to see. I want to remind you, the two previous texts that we looked at over the last number of weeks were passages that spoke to uh, the gospelized and how we are to relate to this world in which we live. 
We, we live in this world as those who are transformed, being transformed by the good news that in Christ we find grace and forgiveness and uh, we experience salvation. And so as those who are now in the kingdom of God, we are to live as those who do not pursue the things of this world and as those who do not worry about the things of this world, right? That's how we relate to this world. What I want to suggest to you is that here, Jesus turns from the matter of how we relate to the world to the matter of how we relate to one another. Look at how essential relationships to one another is in the, the life of the gospelized. Jesus is going to speak to that, how we relate to one another. And I want to contend here, and I'll say more about this later, but you cannot, I've said this before, we cannot faithfully follow Jesus independently from one another as lone rangers. It's simply not a biblical option. We can strive to live a moral life, yes, but we cannot live the gospelized life. We cannot live faithful to all that Jesus calls us to independently from one another. There are so many places in the New Testament that we could go where I could defend that assertion, but, but let me just stay here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in teaching us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he, he teaches us to pray our Father. He teaches us to pray, uh, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us. He, he teaches this, this in community we come before God. And so, yes, we come to faith individually. We each are called to repent of our sin, that is to recognize it, to agree with God, turn from it, and, and put our faith in him for his forgiveness, where we receive his grace and enter into that relationship. We do that individually, but when we come to Jesus in faith, we are brought into fellowship with the Father and with the Father's family. We are brought into relationship with one another. We are described as brothers and sisters. And so we need to recognize that, that community, living together as the church, as the body of Christ, is essential. That's why here, what Jesus is teaching us, that's why Jesus is teaching us what he's teaching us here, so that we know how to relate to one another as those who are gospelized. If relationships with one another were unimportant, if community was insignificant, Jesus would not need to teach us this how we speak into one another's lives. Instead, he could say, hey, the easiest, less, least messy way of living is just avoid other people. It's a lot simpler, right? Just keep your, your eyes on yourself, straight ahead, stay in your lane, a lot simpler. Don't mess with others. But Jesus doesn't tell us that. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, let me make a, a one further point. Jesus does not anticipate that the community of the gospelized will be perfect, or even close to perfect, right? The church, we are, are broken men and women, those who are sinners, redeemed by his grace, who are being transformed, growing into his likeness, but not there yet. And, and so Jesus' expectation is not as we live together as those who are being gospelized that it's gonna be bliss. How many of you have experienced the lack of bliss sometimes in community? right? Jesus expects that we're going to have metaphorical specks in our eyes and even the odd plank sticking out of our faces. And, and, and as we're going to see, is, is that, that's referring to sin. There's going to be sin. It's going to be messy. We need to recognize that, that sin needs to be dealt with. 
So that's an important implication as we come to this whole text is that Jesus is speaking to us as those who have trusted him, who are being gospelized about how we relate to others in the church, how we are to relate to others. Second question, what can Jesus not be saying? What can he not be teaching us here? If we're going to properly grasp what Jesus is saying, we need to understand what he is not saying. And to that end, before we move into that, let me remind you of an important uh, principle of biblical interpretation. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear or easy to understand. We get that, right? And so when we come to Scripture, we need to interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. And so we need to bear that in mind here as we come to this text. Let, Let me speak now to the things that Jesus is not teaching. First, Jesus is not here setting himself against the human institution of law. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy argued this to be the case, that that we should not have any police forces, that we should not have human courts of law, that there should be no judging on the human level whatsoever. But I would suggest that Tolstoy was wrong, that he failed to take into account uh, other things that scriptures say that God says to us for example in Romans 13 where uh, Paul writes this let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established verse 4 for the one in authority is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason they are God's servants agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoing Paul says Jesus says through the apostle Paul that that government have received authority to serve society, and one of their one of their responsibilities is to maintain law and order. Now, poor government doesn't take away from God's design here, and so I would contend that Tolstoy is wrong in saying, "Hey, we should have no police, no no courts, no law, no none, none of that." Second. I would contend that Jesus is not telling us that we should simply mind our own business. Your concern is you, not anyone else. Focus on your life. Stay in your lane. Let everyone else do their thing. Don't worry about their stuff. Don't worry about their sin. Just focus on you. That, that I want to contend that, that that makes no sense in light of what Scripture teaches. In fact, we go all the way back to Genesis where Cain kills his brother. And God comes to him and says, hey, where's your brother? And Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the implication of that text is, yes, you bear responsibility for your brother, for your sister. That that we are called to care for one another. And so that's simply not an option that Jesus is saying, hey, head down. Just keep keep it between me and you. Third, Jesus is also not telling us to suspend our our critical faculties, that is, in relationship to other people and what we observe going around us. That is, that we are to be undiscerning, unthoughtful. Like, that we, we just kind of check our brains when we come to Christ and we no longer think about what's going around. Don't judge. Shut, shut your brain off. Bury your head in the sand. Focus, you know, blinders. Don't ever have any opinion. Don't form any opinion about uh, wrong or right in another person's life. I would contend quite the opposite. Jesus calls us to think carefully. He he calls us to uh, think critically. He calls us to make judgments. 
Listen to what Jesus says in John 7. John 7, 24. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The same Jesus who here says, do not judge, says make right judgments. So he can't be telling us to just shut our brains off, focus only on yourself and don't think about, don't observe, don't don't come to any conclusions about else, what's going on elsewhere. In, in 1 John 4, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to make judgments. We need to discern. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a, a situation where a man in the church is engaged sexually with his stepmom, and the church has turned a blind eye, and they, they're like, well, we're all in Christ. I guess this is okay. And, and Paul says, no. He calls them. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on this man. Now you are to expel him. That is, they are to judge his behavior as being unfitting in the church and put him out of the church. Later in this gospel, Matthew 18, Jesus will say, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Jesus calls us to think. He calls us to make judgments, to discern In the verse we're going to look at next week, Matthew 7, 6, he's going to say, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we are clearly called to be discerning, to be thoughtful, to make judgments. So whatever else Jesus means here, it can't be check your brain. Don't make a judgment. Fourth question, or fourth thing that Jesus is not teaching us, is that we can earn mercy by being merciful, right? We read here, do not judge or you too will be judged. Is Jesus saying, hey, if you cut other people slack, then I'll cut you slack, put it a little crassly. Is is that what Jesus is saying? I would contend he's not. He's not saying that. He can't be saying that because mercy, by definition, is not something earned. Grace is not deserved. I remember uh, years and years ago with one of my sons, uh, I was talking to them. They had done something. I don't even remember what it was. I was unhappy with them and expressing that to them. And he said to me, Daddy, can I have grace? And I remember hearing myself say, you don't deserve grace. (laughs) And then he said, that's what grace is, Daddy. Like, you're right. You're right. Grace is not earned. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you cut other people slack, I'll go easy on you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Brings us to our third question. How are we to understand the word judge? Now, when we look at any word, there's often a semantic range or different senses of the word, and we need to recognize that, and that's true here. Uh, The word judge, the word translated judge here has a range of meanings. On the one hand, it can mean to discern, that is to to evaluate and and come to a conclusion. It it can also mean to, to judge judicially. To judge someone is to pronounce a sentence, and it can also mean to condemn or to be judgmental. Now, the context is a determining factor. The context of Scripture as a whole and the context of this text particularly. And so, what is the sense of this word judge? How are we to understand it? 
And I think when we evaluate what we've already seen and what we're going to see, the conclusion we, we necessarily come to is that what Jesus is saying is, do not be judgmental. Do not pronounce condemnation on others. Do not live as critical fault finders. Do not harbor within yourself a judgmental attitude towards your brothers and your sisters. Christ's point is he is speaking to our hearts. He is speaking to our attitude in how we relate to one another. That conclusion fits so well with what we've observed thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes. Remember the the, the Beatitudes with which the sermon begins. Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy. That you come to God with nothing. You come with nothing but desperate need. And when you come recognizing that, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We encounter in the the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn for their own sin and mourn over the sin of others, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for you will be so merciful. Those who have received God's mercy, who recognize their, their deep indebtedness to God because you can't help but respond with mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not those who are righteous, but long for that. They, they long for the right relatedness of all people with God and with one another. They, they long for things to be the way God intended them to be. I'll say more about this momentarily, but this is about our hearts and our attitudes, that we would not be those who are judgmental, brings us to our fourth question. Why are we not to judge others? What is the basis in which Jesus gives us this instruction? Let me read verses one and two to you again. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Is, uh, is Jesus saying that if we're judgmental towards others, then others are likely to be judgmental to us, and that, that would not be comfortable. I mean, it's true. I'd rather not have other people treat me judgmentally, and so if me not being judgmental to others means they won't treat me that way, that's, that's, that's good. That's a pragmatic reason, but is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. I believe the judgment that Jesus warns us of here is the judgment of God. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, writes this, a judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon for it betrays an unbroken spirit. It takes us back to that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? When, When we come to Jesus recognizing that we stand in desperate need of grace, that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right, that, that we have, our, our pockets are empty, our hands are empty, we, we come only with need. We receive grace, we're, we're, we receive the kingdom. And when we were taught to pray, Jesus said, we, we pray, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And he says in verse 15 there, after that, he says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Does that mean that we merit grace by extending grace? No, we've already said that. We can't earn grace. We can't earn mercy. The point is that if we fail to recognize the the depth of our need, 
then, then we've missed something profoundly important. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant? Jesus tells a story about a, a servant who owes a massive debt to the king. $400 billion be a modern equivalency. Fairly large debt. A little overwhelming. Can't pay it. And the king forgives it. And then that servant goes and finds someone who owes him $400. And he, he throws him in jail because he can't pay for it. Jesus tells that parable in Matthew 18. And there's just this incongruence between the mercy received and the unwillingness to extend it to another. And, and that is a point that Jesus has made over and over through the Sermon on the Mount, that, that when we recognize, when we come in poverty of spirit, realizing our need, that changes us. When we are men and women who grieve over our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, and, and then over the, the sin of our brothers and sisters and those around us in the world, the, the, the brokenness of this world, the rebellion of this world, we grieve, we're promised comfort. We hunger for things to be right-related the way they're supposed to be. We will be satisfied. We receive grace and we, we receive mercy and we can't help but extend mercy because we recognize our own need. And so Jesus is here saying that there is no room in the heart of a gospelized person to harbor a judgmental attitude, a condemning attitude to a brother or sister in their sin. There's just no place for that. We all stand in desperate need of His mercy. So how can we at the same time Harbor that judgmentalism while coming to God and saying, oh, thank you for your grace, your amazing mercy. Those, those two movements of the heart are utterly incompatible. Here's what Tim Keller writes. If you believe the gospel, that you are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, and you still hold a grudge, or I'll add, or are judgmental, at the very least it shows that you are blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life or you're kidding yourself and perhaps you don't believe the gospel at all. We do not earn grace. We do not earn God's mercy. But mercy begets mercy. Grace begets grace. How is it that we could kneel before the cross of Christ? How is it that we could gaze upon Christ bleeding and suffering on the cross for me, bearing the penalty that I deserve? Out of love for me, he gives himself. And I, I kneel before him and I say, thank you for your grace, unmerited, undeserved. You are my only hope. And then respond with judgmentalism and condemnation to a brother or sister. It's just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. The gospel transforms us. It changes us. It confronts those inconsistencies and brings transformation. Fifth question, what is the point of Jesus' ophthalmological illustration? That's a good word. I practiced it. What's the point? Jesus uses this illustration, humorous really. He speaks about a speck and a plank. How many of you, I'm sure you don't have to show your hands, have ever had a speck of something sawdust or something fly in your eye? I know in my construction years, I don't know that I ever wore safety glasses, not bragging, that's not, not smart, but 
that happened many, many times. And it is amazing, is it not, how irritating, how painful a little speck of sawdust in the eye is. Like it can, it can be, it's a problem. We agree? Like a speck does not belong in our eye. Jesus knows that and that's the reality he's pointing to. That a speck doesn't belong in your eye. Your, your eye is, is to be free from specks. Specks of whatever. And so a, a speck doesn't belong. And so his point here we're going to see is that if you see a brother or sister that has some foreign body in their eye, a speck, it behooves you out of love for them, out of care for them, that you would seek to help them get it out of their eye. If you've ever had something in your eye, someone helps you, maybe they get water and splash it in your face or whatever, but, but someone's, if they just ignore you, like, oh, good luck with that, like, hardly a caring, loving attitude. And so the point is, if, if a brother or sister has something in their eye that is irritating, that is un, unhealthy, maybe, maybe they don't even notice it, but you look at them and you see this thing and go, ooh, that's, that's not good, we should get that out of there. That's Jesus' point. But, but here is what we need to grasp. If you notice a brother or sister with a speck in their eye, but you have a tree sticking out of your face, you're probably not in a position to help them yet. Right? He, Jesus is pointing out the fact that, that when we have obvious sin in our own lives, when there are things that are wildly out of whack in our own lives, we need to deal with our own sin first. Not deal only with our sin and ignore what's going on in your brother or sister's life, but deal with your own sin. That is, as those who are gospelized, we are called to fight and we are to, to root it out of our lives. We are to do battle with it, to seek to overcome it. That, that is our posture. We deal with that first and then we can help a brother or sister. Now, we think this is obvious, but it's so it's so easy for us, remarkably, to miss the, the plank sticking out of our own eye, but notice everything going on in someone else's life. Here's what John Stott writes. He says, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gra gravity of our own. Perhaps the greatest biblical example of this is the story of King David. Many of you will know this story. King David was at home one night, unable to sleep. He went out on the roof of his palace and he saw a woman naked bathing, the wife of one of his soldiers, a woman named Bathsheba, and he sent for her, had her brought to the palace, he slept with her, and then discovered after the fact that she was now pregnant. And so he, he went through some efforts to try and cover that up, but he failed. And so ultimately he came up with another plan to have her husband killed, which happened. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. Time passed, more than nine months, as Bathsheba gave birth to a son. And then God sent Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan came and he told David this story. He said, there were two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep. The poor man just had one, him and his children. It was like a pet. It was like a member of the family, dear to them. And a traveler came to visit the rich man, and the rich man wanted to prepare a meal, and so he went and he took the lamb from the poor man. He didn't take one of the ones that he already had. He had huge flocks. He took the one single dearly loved lamb from the poor man, and he killed it and made supper. And David rages. David's like, oh, 
Oh, that guy deserves to die. And then Nathan says, you are that man. That's what you did when you stole Uriah's wife and had him killed. David just didn't even see. He, he just, he had hardened his heart and he missed his own sin, this enormous sin act of rebellion against God. And so Jesus says we need to look inward. We need to do business with our own sin before we can help others. Leads us to the sixth question. What are the implications for our lives? How, how do we live this out? Now again, I said earlier that some of us might be tempted to conclude that it's best and safest to just mind our own business, right? Everyone stay in your own lane. Don't make any judgments about anyone else. Don't talk to anyone else about what's going on in their life. Just focus on your own life. Do your own thing. But that would be to miss the point that Jesus is making. Look again at verse 5. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you see? Do you see what Jesus is saying? That you and I, as the gospelized, those who have repented and put our faith in Jesus, have a responsibility towards our brothers and sisters. We have a responsibility to others who are in this journey with us to help one another spiritually, to care for one another spiritually. Remember the implication that we began with that, that Jesus here is speaking to how we relate to one another as the gospelized. We need help. We need assistance. We need brothers or sisters who care for our spiritual well-being, who will help us identify sin in our lives and help us root it out of our lives. Now, some of you might be squirming going, that's uncomfortable. I just want to remind you that when Jesus gave his life for us, that was not comfortable. But Jesus did that for us out of love for us. And he calls us to love one another as he has loved us. And so we have this God-given call, this responsibility to engage deeply with one another, to care for one another's spiritual well-being. We cannot live as Lone Ranger Christians. We cannot live with blinders and say, hey, you keep out of my business and I'll keep out of yours. That is not a biblical option. And as we remember, as we bear in mind this God-given responsibility to care spiritually for one another, we also need to recognize that we always need to remember the cross of Christ. And that the cross of Christ would shape our attitudes, that there would not be judgmentalism, there would be no condemnation, but rather grace and gentleness and humility that we would come to one another as those who know that we kneel next to the same cross in the same need of grace. And we would say, brother, I see this in your life and I want to help you root that out. It's not, it's not what Jesus wants for you. Sister, I recognize this. Can I help you? And that we in turn would have the humility to receive that care. That we wouldn't get our shorts in a knot and get our backs up and, ha, get away from me. Too often in the church, that's what happened. We, we speak to someone and we just run off because uh, that's, that's too close, that's too personal. But that's exactly what we're called to. That's how we're called to relate to one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to, to speak gently, humbly, graciously, 
into one another's lives, that we would grow, that we would all be transformed increasingly into men and women who would reflect the character of Jesus. When I sent that message to Christine, there was some confusion, some miscommunication. And when we come to this text, too often we have lived out a confused understanding. Well, Jesus says, do not judge, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to, that's not my business. But that is to miss the point. That is to miss Christ's clear call. Christ's aim is to transform each one of us by the power of his spirit because of the gospel. That, that each one of us is called to fight against sin, to root sin out of our lives. And to that end, we need one another's help. We need one another to speak into our lives. We need one another to come gently and graciously and humbly. But we need, need that. So let me leave you with two questions. Are you open to the spiritual care of your brothers and sisters? Are you prepared to have a brother or sister gently and humbly and with grace come to you and say, hey, I see this. I don't think this is what God wants for you. Can, can I help you? Are you open to that? That's what it means to live as the people of God. And second question is, are you also willing to take the risk to extend that kind of care? It's a lot more comfortable to stay in your own lane, right? But Jesus has called us. He's given us this great responsibility, this great privilege of living as brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ. Are you open to that kind of spiritual care from your brothers and sisters? And are you willing to give, to provide, to risk that kind of spiritual care for others? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love and your amazing grace. We thank you that you've called us not only into fellowship with you, but into fellowship with one another. And Jesus, we pray that you would move in our midst. Oh God, that you would grant us all humility. That you would guard us from judgmentalism, Lord, that where there is a judgmental spirit, Lord, that we would come to you even right now and we would, we would confess it, we would repent of it, and we would invite you to change it, that we would have hearts full of grace and mercy, that we would, that we would be gentle and gracious, and Lord, that you would work in us, rooting sin out and transforming us into those who walk in holy obedience for your glory and for our joy, we pray this, Jesus. Amen.